0: Everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when tonight, December 11th, 2021, we appear to be getting a return transmission from a Mua. Now, for those of you that have not followed this show for the last week or two, let me tell you what we did. Last week on the 4th in the evening, when the show about about half an hour before The Other Side of Midnight went on the air, we started a transmission sequence of what I'm terming specific hyperdimensional frequencies, meaning um, frequencies that are part of the hyperdimensional equations, the torsion field model, that are immortalized in sacred sites around the world, and we're transmitting these on two separate frequencies that even of themselves as carrier waves are absolutely straight hyperdimensional. One is 144.1 megahertz, and the other is 432 megahertz. And these numbers, 144 and 432, show up... In Egypt, they show up in the measurements of the Giza Plateau over and over and over again. They show up in the measurements all over the solar system. They show up in sacred sites as from England to Southeast Asia to Australia to Africa through the work of uh, my uh, friend and colleague Carl Monk. They are part of human history, like an attempt to memorialize in every way possible, the key mathematics and geometry of hyperdimensional physics so we would not forget and we forgot. At least some of us have forgotten. Or there has been an extraordinary, literally millennia-long campaign to get us to forget why these numbers are important. So in the last couple of weeks, I had this bright idea, thought it was a bright idea, that given that we had this first interstellar interloper come zipping through the solar system in October of 2017, plunging toward the plane of the solar system's planets that kind of orbit the sun, uh, like all in the flat plane of an LP record, and then making almost a right-hand turn and dashing off at escape speed, well in excess of escape speed in the direction of the constellation Pegasus. I said to myself, well, if, um, as I and others have independently figured out, this thing was the first, not only the first interstellar visitor we've ever had, but in fact, some kind of intelligently designed artifact, a probe, a time capsule, whatever you want to call it, I said to myself, what would happen if you had access to a very powerful radio transmitter and you sent a signal to a mua at the conventional speed of light um, in a long transmission sequence lasting, let's say five minutes. And then you repeated the sequence again and again and again and again for several hours because at the speed of light, again, we're limiting this discussion at the moment to mainstream physics, it would take about 3.69 hours as of last Saturday night, exactly seven hyperdimensional days ago, for the signal to get there, and then 3.69 hours if they responded instantly for the signal to get back to Earth. So that was kind of our model. And the idea was that I would come on the air and we would describe the experiment, which we did. In fact, we're rerunning that entire program because of its extraordinary historicity tomorrow night. That's going to be our program tomorrow night. A rebroadcast faithfully showing you in audio in real time what happened during our first test transmission window to and from Moomua seven days ago. And then since we got such extraordinary results during the program, we've spent now about a week trying to analyze what we got. We got two separate avenues of, shall we say, return signals. And I'm gonna warn you right up front, they kind of violate the fundamental concept of SETI, you know, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, Because, of course, the mainstream is assuming nothing can exceed the speed of light. And so we would have to wait for radio waves to go all the way out to Oumuamua, which is about 2.5 billion miles from the sun tonight, leaving the solar system at almost 60,000 miles per hour. Something like 16, well, wait a minute, 26 kilometers and change per second. And I can't do the conversion to miles in my head for those folks that are attached to miles like I am. Um, I don't have a calculator down here. I've taken it upstairs in the library. Anyway, so if someone, David, if you can supply me what 26 kilometers per second is in miles per second, that would be very useful and just going to break in. Anyway, that was the idea that we were dealing in the SETI paradigm. You send signal you wait for signal to get to target. You wait for target to answer and then turn around and, and, you know, deliver the answer back to you at the speed of light. Well, things began to happen even as Jimmy um, uh, um, Blanchett began transmitting about half an hour before airtime last Saturday night. And the way things began happening is that directly over the antenna which was in the 110-degree field of view of a very sensitive, low-light-level uh, night vision television system, he began seeing, and fortunately all this was recorded, amazing things happening in the sky directly over the antenna between the antenna and a muamua which is 2.5 billion miles away, totally invisible in the dark against the stars. I mean, right now, its optical magnitude um, is about plus 36. Human eyesight only goes to plus 6. Each magnitude is 2.5 times dimmer than the next one. So you do the math. Muamua by reflected sunlight, even 2.5 billion miles away, which is almost at the distance of the planet Neptune, by the way, is a very, 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 very dim spark of light in the dark. No telescope on Earth is capable tonight of even seeing it. It's so infinitesimally dim. But, for some reason, as we were transmitting weird, I mean, all I can call them is UFOs began popping in and out of the frame of the low-light TV camera that Jimmy had carefully set up, sided with the radio beam from the center of the antenna array. In other words, they were doing selfies. They were doing uh, what uh, photobombing. Um, as we were transmitting, and obviously, if you interpret this as a response... The response was coming hundreds of times faster than the so-called speed of light. Now, I set all this up because for mainstream folks and most people listening to radio and most people, you know, reading newspapers or watching television or even on Facebook, they're mainstream folks. They take their cues for how the universe works from the mainstream. We represent the fringe. Now, we have a large contingent of people with us who represent the fringe, but that's not who we have to reach to convince the world that something extraordinary is going on. We must have a message that fits into the frame of the mainstream. So our problem, and we're going to continue carrying through this uh Idea tonight is how do we convince people who think we're all nuts and there's nothing out there and a muamua was just a rock, you know, that made a turn around the sun, regardless of what I and Abby Loeb and others may think and write and, and calculate? Well, obviously, one way to do that would be to provide incontrovertible evidence of some kind of intelligent information coming from this little tiny interloper in the dark or this is a big or its representatives because obviously you know if you have literal UFOs showing up over your uh, antenna as you're transmitting they must in some metonymic way be connected to the concept of communicating with a muamua, or why would they bother? I mean, if, if, if we're dealing with one big, very complicated, unhappy family out there with various diverse species, various diverse subset cousins of the human family, which is our model, or even outright aliens, um, you've got to ask yourself, why would everybody care? that a small group of humans on planet Earth on a December evening decided to send a very primitive radio signal actually to 144.1 and 432 megahertz in the direction of a muamua. In other words, one would expect logically that only those directly involved with a muamua, which may come with a lot of unseen Uh, connectivity and baggage and hangers-on and associates, and, you know, we can get into speculating as to how many folks could be associated with this little experiment to see how we'd react to an interstellar interloper coming through the solar system in a very Newtonian fashion, kind of like the ancient model that if someone's going to try to let us know we're not alone, they would send a Bracewell probe which would you know, come around the sun, um, kind of like, remember Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama? That's what a lot of people kind of associated Muamua with, uh, was Arthur's very classic now uh, uh, original novel with an interstellar probe coming through the solar system and being totally passive, not, not you know, broadcasting anything, not saying anything, just it was there. And because it was late enough in the 20, I think, 21st century, if I remember Arthur's novel, the, the technology of spaceflight had developed to the point where human beings could actually rendezvous with Brahma and go inside. And then they found all kinds of really cool things. And And um, I don't want to spoil the novel, but you, you should read it. It's very, very cogent tonight. You should read Rendezvous with Rama. Well, we got nothing on Earth in the above-board space program. Uh, Who knows what the secret space program guys have done. If I were them, I would have obviously rendezvoused and visited and gone inside of Muamua to see what's going on. But assuming that has not taken place, one of my ideas was that if this, in fact, was something like a bracewell probe which was a term coined by a Stanford radio engineer who was very deeply involved in the early days of SETI at Stanford University and he thought up the idea that it, primitive civilizations might again this is in a non faster than the speed of light universe where you're limited to to see to the speed of light he thought they might send automated probes kind of in a spray all throughout their galactic neighborhood. And depending upon how far away this very sophisticated culture was, at some point, one or two of these probes might wander through the solar system, take up orbits of the sun, and wait. Waiting for what? Well, waiting... For whatever civilization or consciousness or species lived in this solar system to develop radio. And when the probe heard signals through the ionosphere, and we know that radio has only been an active technology on Earth for, you know, 100, 120 years, something like that, going back to Marconi and Tesla, Bracewell's idea was that it would then answer. It would spring to life. It would say, oh, there's a signal. I should respond. And one of the ways you respond, again, in this paradigm, is you send back the same kind of signals that you detect if you're the probe. And the idea would be that the people behind the original signals would get really, really, really curious as to the long-term Echoes at the speed of light, like hours after the transmission uh, on uh, KDKA, let's say, out of Pittsburgh, the same program that KDKA back in the teens or the 20s had broadcast would come down from the stars, out of the darkness of space, impinge on the antenna, and would get everybody going, how the hell did that happen? Where did that come from? And in fact, there is a class of anomalous radio signals, which have the property of exactly the long-term rebroadcast echoes that I just described, and they're still mysterious. There was a guy some years ago named Duncan Lunan. I wrote about him in uh, the Monuments of Mars. He thought he had detected the so-called Bracewell uh, transmissions from a probe located, I believe, it was supposed to be at one of the. Uh, Lagrange points uh, in orbit around the Earth, either ahead of the Moon by 60 degrees or behind the Moon. I kind of forget which. Anyway, some years later, he 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 kind of recanted his decoding of what he thought was the return signals from a Bracewell probe. So, in this field, everything was dormant until a muumuah showed up in October of 2017. Having the orbital characteristics of a Bracewell probe, except it did not slow down. Like Rama, it made a turn around the sun and left in excess of the sun's escape velocity. And even tonight, way out there, the calculation says that it's leaving at something like 58,000 miles per hour, 26 kilometers per second. If uh, we can get that in miles, I'd be very appreciative um it's probably on the order of nineteen twenty something like that miles per second it's It's really moving in I like the proverbial bat out of hell, never to return unless maybe it wants to i mean one of the things that uh, David and Jimmy and I speculated about was what do we send this thing signals and part of the Uh, signal transmission is a request to turn around, come back, and put yourself in Earth orbit. I mean, that would get everybody's attention, right? Well, so far that has not happened, at least uh, I don't think it's happened. But instead, as we were doing the transmissions last Saturday evening, just before the show, Jimmy recorded on video, and in fact, we, we, we have that video, if you go to... The other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, amazing things happened when we called a Moa." Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Click on My Items. Scroll down to item number three. This is a video montage of all the weird things that happened over the antenna uh, last Saturday night. And Jimmy has very carefully labeled them. There's a countdown for each of the weird objects that appeared. He then zooms in on the video so you can see actual close-ups of these objects. And you can see that they are structured craft. They are not, you know, dots of light. They're not little blinking lights. They literally wink in and out in in the space of one or maybe two or three frames. But while they're in view of the camera, and you can zoom in, there is structure, there is detail, there is geometry. Oh, that word! In other words, they're they're real three-dimensional objects that are hovering, photobombing his camera above the antenna as we were transmitting to Amuamua, and furthermore, they also appeared uh, after the show. Just for the heck of it, he decided to send a transmission to Sirius, given that some of our guests, like uh, Michael Lee Hill, have said that uh, he's had uh, discussions with real three-dimensional folks here on Earth with bodies that claim they are part of a race of beings, kind of relationship to Homo sapiens from Sirius. So Jimmy just decided to send a transmission to Sirius at the end of the evening after the show. And lo and behold, something showed up in front of that field of view, which uh, was very interesting because it was more than one object. And it was one object, first of all, to the right of the belt stars of Orion. And then a few minutes later, it was another set of objects, three objects that appeared simultaneously over the antenna and through the antenna um, to the left of Orion and to the left of Sirius, which is kind of that bright star in the middle of the two antenna elements when you play the video. So the video's there. It's number three. Go play it, and uh, you will have a lot of fun. Now, here's where things get squirrely and very interesting. Because while all this is going on, David Sarita, who's sitting thousands of miles away, maybe 1,500 miles away in southern Canada, is listening to and recording a handheld radio tuned to 144.1 megahertz. And the radio emits little chirps. But as David will describe to you, it's not radio signals. It's something controlling the speaker in the radio in a non-electromagnetic fashion, i.e. the torsion field. I mean, this is direct torsion field uh, control of matter, making the speaker vibrate and to produce these chirps, but in a total non-electromagnetic fashion, which, of course, is going to really confound all the mainstream physicists listening to me saying, come on, that's nuts. That cannot happen. Well, it happened. We've recorded it, and we're going to play it for you right now. So what you want to do is you want to go to number four, because these are the replays of the, what we call burst transmissions that occurred during our test transmission window to Oumuamua. What you're gonna hear first are the actual chirps recorded live. And then you're gonna hear a sequence, the same chirps slow down, because it occurred to me that what we were hearing is in what they call in the military, burst transmissions meaning a lot of data compressed into a very, very, very short period of time. And in fact, that's exactly what this sounds like. And And Keith has been working uh, with some other colleagues to get it slowed down to the point where we can actually begin to look at the individual frequencies and tell if it's voice, if it's data, or if it's a television raster, i.e., you know, pictures, maybe individual pictograms like we're sending tonight, or a sequence of rapid pictograms, which of course is known as a motion picture. So here's what the original reception from Muamua sounded like, and then the the slow down version in mirror sequence. That's the original <laughs> That's the playback at slow speed. That's the original. That's the slow speed. One more time. Now, you may notice that the last one appears to be double in length, and if you listen very carefully to the slow down version, you can tell it's not static because you can hear individual submodulations. It almost sounds like uh, a recording of a very rapid fire, you know, machine gun. We'll play it one more time. original playback slow motion this is this is impossible a we shouldn't gotten anything back b we're getting it back faster than the speed of light c it's modulated There's information, this is not static, this is not random, this is not, you know, airy-fairy stupid stuff. This is real, and the implications of how and why and who and what are doing this are literally off scale. Um, Tonight we're gonna try something a little bit more adventurous. I've got about uh, three minutes till the bottom of the hour. So let me bring on David Sarita, who is one of the co-investigators in this madcap experiment. David is a citizen scientist. He is a generalist. He's been doing this kind of stuff with all different areas of human consciousness and scientific exploration for decades. He was an old alum of Art Bell show, like I've been. And David, um, what do you think we're involved
1: in? well first i want to answer your question about the kilometers and this is going to shock a lot of people because 26.03973291504 kilometers per second comes to the golden ratio in um in decimal um it's 16.180339887 oh
0: isn't that
1: special you see I'm I'm only adjusting it a hair's breadth because you gave me 26 kilometers but actually even more shocking Richard is the fact that I don't know what prompted me to do this but with this you know we talked about this this week where what I did is I took the um <clears throat> I took the distance of the closest distance that a Muamua came to Earth, which is twenty-four million two hundred thousand kilometers, compared to an astronomical unit, which is the Earth to Sun average distance of 149,597870 miles. So when you when you do the math, when you take the astronomical unit divided by the closest distance a muamua came. It's 1 to 6.18. So <laughs> you have that golden ratio number again. So, Hey, then- you want to hear something really
0: cool? And then we got, a, we got a break coming up in about a minute and a half. Yeah. But I'm, I'm looking up some numbers this afternoon to kind of get ready for the opening of the show. And I happened to stumble upon uh, something I'd taken notes on back in 2017, which of course have disappeared. I can't find them. So I have to reconstruct what I was doing, what I was thinking. It turns out, that when a Muamua came in from Lyra, made the screaming left hand turn around the sun and departed toward Pegasus, at its closest approach to the sun, are you sitting down?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It was moving at 195,000 miles per hour. 195. 19.5. Mm-hmm.
1: There's your, yeah, so these, In other oh. words,
0: everything about this thing screamed somebody had targeted it artificially. And what's really cool is that Avi Loeb, for totally separate reasons, came to the same conclusion that we have. This damn thing was an artificial something sent to us deliberately by those that care to send the very best.
1: The only you would recognize nineteen point five, and 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 I I've got thousands of numbers in my head like a like studying French I study numbers. So when I saw also on the live tracker the velocity was changing by the day, and the day we transmitted, it was traveling at six. It was traveling at golden ratio number sixty one thousand eight zero. Sorry miles per hour. So so basically this thing was signaling us with golden ratio mathematics, and that's that's impossible for something that is a naturally occurring.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we are we are asteroid. in a new we are in a new paradigm. And what's yeah. really bizarre is that new paradigm is talking to us in the same language of the physics, which is part and parcel of the most ancient. Sacred monuments of the human species. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, we'll go through them when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. We're involved right now in a real time experiment. Is a mua mua going to answer tonight? We will give you that answer when we return. <laughs>
3: approach to it has been of course from this academic scientific side to try to show that from that point of view that even in the in the depths of the of the data that they're presenting they don't have a case they've misrepresented things they've distorted things in the public representations and of course i'm not alone in having come to that conclusion Number one, there are an increased number of deaths for 2020. But number two, these are not caused by COVID-19. They're caused by the biological and psychological effects of the lockdowns themselves. Because when Mm -hmm. you lock people down, when you wreck an economy... you get an increase in heart disease and cancers. You get an increase in what is called deaths of despair. Uh, You get suicides, you get drug addiction going up and overdoses killing people. And all of these things put together by my estimate in my research paper, shows that as many as 600,000 people died in 2020 from just these things, deaths by despair and the effects of the lockdowns and the forced masking. This is Dr. James DeMeo, and I'm speaking to you from the other side of the news. Your program, I must say, compliments you. You're doing a great job in assisting to get around these barriers of censorship and erasure that the mainstream media is doing. Uh, So it's very important, and I congratulate you for the work you're doing. I'm an invited guest on the other side of the news and I found it to be a very enlightening and helpful and wonderful experience being interviewed by three intelligent people.
0: Welcome back, everyone. On this Saturday night, December eleventh, which is the second of our four weekends now, we're going to devote in December. Originally, we had, you know, thought we would only do like a a brief transmission on the fourth, and then we wait until Christmas weekend, which is when the hyperdimensional physics it says it's the optimum time to try something like this. But the fact that we got such an extraordinary response a multi-channel response a redundant multi-channel response i mean probably that night we got hundreds of transmissions and uh i i'm I'm gonna have david kind of explain again what we mean by this because we're not dealing with radio we can prove with something which is a you know mainstream physics gadget called a tri-field meter it measures three fields simultaneously and david will describe what it does when we when we measure what we're getting it's not em okay so david um sorry to interrupt but you know the clock calls so where are we uh, talk about how these transmissions are coming to us and why they're not only interesting in terms of a response But they're doubly interesting or triply or, you know, probably a factor of 10 or 100 in terms of the mode
1: of the response. Well, we know that the the speed of the Navy pilot UAPs based on Kevin Day's USS Princeton radar data have reached, according to him, right on Netflix, he stated that a UAP jumped 60 miles in a second which comes to 216,000 miles an hour. So we, we which know Which is that already ha- about twice, well, not quite, but it's way above the so-called speed of light. Oh no no no! It's not about the speed of light. It's it, no, wait! Oh my God! Two hundred sixteen thousand miles per hour. One hundred eighty-six thousand two hundred eighty-two miles per second is the speed of light. Oh, you're right. You're right. So, right. so sorry. So, but but what's interesting about that again is it's it's an octave of four thirty-two because two hundred sixteen thousand miles an hour times two is four hundred thirty-two thousand miles an hour. But what's amazing about that is the speed with which with the UAPs jump in front of the the antenna to get a selfie as you call it and then exit and we were talking about this this week that because of the sensors we have already in place and I've already researched these centers we have radar that can see hundreds of miles beyond above the earth's surface so when something comes in at incredible speed we see it and we try to take it out so they know they only have a fraction of a second to get out of the selfie position. And and therefore, it's quite miraculous that they appear in front of Jimmy's camera, which is in night vision mode, and you're not seeing streaking from them coming in and leaving because you can't actually optically see something moving at 216,000 miles an hour. In fact, if something's close to you, like a bullet, traveling even 700 miles an hour out of a handgun you can't see that either you can only see things moving fast if they're incredibly distant from you then you can see them when we're looking at meteorites streaking across the sky 35 40,000 miles an hour is what you're seeing you know even 15,000 miles an hour for a slower one but the the the, the issue here is that these UAPs or UFOs are appearing with no streaking or blurring in front of the camera and this this afternoon at around 3 p.m. Mountain Time Jimmy was doing a test transmission and with a blue sky we can see a bright white object that's actually moving by the camera and the camera... Oh, it gets even more on. interesting.
0: Let me, let me give instructions yeah. to continue on air if if you can go Kanthea to the Skype window, the chat window, you'll see two videos posted there. The one with the blue sky is the one that David's talking about right now. If you can post that as his next numbered item, and then below that post the black and white image as the following numbered item, the daytime sighting <clears throat> that David is describing, which you really need to see to believe. Uh, during uh, the early transmissions this afternoon uh, is the first one, and the second one is what we are what we sent this afternoon into the evening uh, with the 3.69 hour time lag for it to get to Muamua and for the response to get back during the show. So we're now in the listening mode at the speed of light of a return signal from Muamua. Well, I think we're all, all on the verge of maybe throwing this whole light speed limitation kind of out the window, which which makes it harder to prove to a skeptical mainstream that we're dealing with signals. Because, you know, when you have folks popping in and out at any time, regardless of the three-dimensional limitations of light speed, it makes it harder to convince people who all their lives have been raised on the idea that the speed of light is the fastest mode of transport in the known universe. Sorry to interrupt there, go ahead.
1: So yeah we know that Tesla with his alternating current radio went 1.618 times the speed of light so we know there may be a function of the speed of light and golden ratio and or octaves actually so therefore the, the, the time issue of what's called time dilation also came up which is that The further you get away from gravity, time speeds up, which means more time went by, which means you lived longer further away from the gravitational center. And the closer you get to the gravitational center, time, in essence, slows down. So things are going by much slower. So you're more dilated and locked in time. So when you see that super high-speed pulse on the radio, which is not RF, there's no – radio frequencies detectable on those incoming signals on the trifield meter, which can see up to eight gigahertz radio signals, there's no activity at all. So that means that that chirp, which has an enormous amount of data, when, we, when I examined the wave structure of those chirps, and I looked at how many different frequencies are in a single chirp, which is going by in less than a second, then you slow that down, which you played for us tonight. You played the slow down version, reminds me of the alien in the movie Arrival. Kind of the way God, everybody's talking about this movie, and I haven't seen it. So, please, no spoilers. <laughs> okay, so what's amazing about that is you have with possible evidence of what's called time dilation, and we know that Marconi and Tesla were receiving these same what they both believe were extraterrestrial signals on their radio. Uh, early radio experiments, and I believe we're we're detecting the same things, but they didn't consider time dilation. And it was actually your idea for me to slow the recording down, which I did by a factor of 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 we're only hearing ten percent speed. So so that's um, so that's you slowed it down hearing. by so you slowed it down by a factor of ten. Yeah. So you're you're, you're slowed down by a factor of 10 and I think I can slow it down by another factor of 10 which would be another experiment but I well, need to higher hang on. and then all you have to do is raise the octave like one octave well, no, or then, two octaves What you have to do then is is actually I can slow it down in octaves it's probably better to start from the top but I need to re-record I just ordered a high res 97 you know uh, 97 thousand bits per second radio recorder so that I can record these chirps in higher resolution so I'll have more bandwidth of resolution in my wave file Then when I when I open up my wave file I can see how many little ticks are in each burst and each one of those ticks as I can see them in in my editing bay is each tick has got at least, at least 20 or 30 different frequencies in it and the only thing and I said this last time on your show the only thing that looks like that is 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 language in music there's nothing else that looks like that because because pure tones if I show you a wave file of any tone like a 440 a 432 or a 444 It's just a repeating exact size up and down wave bouncing along in a straight line. So that's not what the wave structure of the chirps looks like. So that rules out some type of tonal interference because that's not what tones wave structure looks like. So where we we have two things happening and, and it was your idea to try to get a synchronicity of the timing of the UFOs appearing in front of the camera and the chirps on the radio. Because the chirps seem to respond. It seems to take them uh, less than a minute to even a couple of minutes to start after a transmission begins. And sometimes there there is a little bit of delay and once they start chirping they they can chirp for quite a while like (laughs) i've seen them chirp for 20 minutes to a half an hour before they stop and i've never recorded a full half an hour of chirping to and and then slow the whole thing down it could be like an essay that they're sending us like we don't know yet so we've got also the idea of building a body so this is Einstein's action at a distance and I want to bring up action at a distance because action at a distance circumvents the speed of light for example you would hook up electrodes or galvanic skin response to a mother rabbit and a baby rabbit and they separate them by 6,000 miles and they, they pinprick the baby ma- baby rabbit and the mother's nervous system responds faster than the speed of light, instantaneously 6,000 miles away. They've done this. So Who was the, who, who function, was the, who
0: was the guy that did the, sacred, the Secret Life of Plants? Christoph- that was Cleve
1: Baxter. Cleve Baxter. Cleve, Cleve Baxter did, you know, I, I got really involved with actually Cleve Baxter before he passed away. And also some of the other scientists in that movie did incredible experiments. There was one experiment where... An optical telescope was pointed at Sirius A and at the light collection end of the telescope he put sprouts sprouting plants that were connected to electrodes and then again a galvanic skin response which is what a polygraph is and he could see activity coming from the plants of receiving the light from Sirius which he speculated was a faster-than-light signaling meaning the plants because of their sensitivity to action at a distance, just like even a human nervous system has. In fact, this was an incredible experiment done in Russia, well, where wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. There, there, there's a guy named Nikolai T- uh, uh, Kozarev, who was mm-hmm. the big torsion field physicist that I quote and have written about extensively over the last you know uh, decade or two. Kozarev mm-hmm. discovered that if he put a torsion field detector in a sealed box so there was no light getting to the detector it mm-hmm. was literally sitting there in darkness but it was at the focal point of a large russian telescope in the crimea the Polkovo observatory which had i think a 50 inch mirror so that's a that's a that's a big telescope it's a professional mm-hmm. size telescope he found he got signals that were not light coming from various galactic and planetary objects, including the planets of the sun, the moon, Sirius, the galactic center, Andromeda, I, I forget the whole list. But what was stunning is these were signals that were bouncing off the aluminum of the mirror. And aluminum is the only no- natural torsion-active metal that we know. Remember I said the top of the Washington mm-hmm. Monument was, had this aluminum little pyramidion because it was a mm-hmm. torsion-active metal? Well, Kozariv mm-hmm. got these signals, so what the plants are responding to, just like we discussed last week, if you want a, an active torsion-field detector, a life form, a plant, you know, a crustacean, a human being is kind of like a live antenna and receiver all in one. I never heard of Cleve Baxter doing this with the light from Sirius, but it's perfectly consistent with the
1: model. It is perfectly consistent. I, I And I know a Russian experiment where they had sprouts detecting a um, solar flare you know 8.7 minutes before the flare reached earth they, they they detected the flare on the sun in real time and then by the time the light got to earth you know 8 minutes and 21 seconds later the you know the regular light curve hit the planet yeah. but the point is the plants um, could detect the signal actually it wasn't plants it was it was microorganisms uh-huh.
0: So I'll tell you what let tor- I, I, I hate to interrupt but, but Bruce Solheim Dr. Bruce Solheim who's a professor of physics at a um, a Southern California college and who, uh, you know, graciously uh, consented to my invitation to be part of the, uh, the conversation tonight. What I wanted Bruce to do, because he's been in contact since he was four with some kind of extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm not quite sure who it is, but they're talking to him. And so I thought it might be interesting, given that we've now establish that whatever we're getting transcends the limited physics of speed of light communication that we go to bruce and we'd see what his friend anzar remember anzar has kind of like an emblem that's a, uh, a two-dimensional equilateral triangle that when you fold it up becomes a three-dimensional tetrahedron so his friend knows the language and so bruce uh, are you there
4: uh yeah, hi guys. Uh this is well it's it's fascinating hearing what you guys are are talking about. Very exciting. But I do uh, uh also I'm a professor of history, not of of physics. Oh, did that, I say that, physics? I meant history. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, that's that's all right. Just want to make sure it's accurate. Um this is what I've been told. So, uh in in the communication that I do during these these spirit walks and uh, I got some communication here as you guys were talking too, but I'll I'll start with what he's told me recently, based on listening to these, uh, you know, the recordings, the responses that you guys got. Which is
0: your friend Anzar, who claims yeah. to be a progenitor—a very yeah. interesting term.
4: Anzar, the progenitor, yeah, an ancient alien mystic, and as as he sometimes calls himself, a long lost relative. So it's kind of interesting. So anyway, he's telling me uh, the the translation. Uh, is a warning for humanity. Uh, he always says, stay in the light. And so that that's part of it. Uh, a warning beacon, a sentinel, uh, that there are some uh, of these these hyperdimensional alien beings who wish to do us harm. And there are others like Anzar who are trying to help. Uh, and more recently, he said that... Um, the messaging from uh, Oumuamua is a warning beacon, a warning signal, packaged information, instructions on how to deal with non-human entities who are pushing humans into madness. Mm. And uh, so that's, that's and, and then during the, um, tonight as I was listening to you guys, I kind of opened up some communication lines with him before the show started and uh, 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 as you had requested me to do. And as I was listening, I uh, heard a couple of things. One of them was that um, this concept, of, he's trying to put it into terms that I understand, and a lot of folks would may- maybe understand better uh, an interstellar message in a bottle. <laughs> and I think of the idea. Well, of a message is that in a, a mua Yeah. Okay that that kind of fits about. yeah that kind of that's fits what well, yeah,
0: that's kind I, of think, fits well, I i thought it might be
4: yeah and uh Packaged the, in uh, a
0: way that our three-dimensional 21st mm-hmm. century physics can understand
4: yeah yeah so and then in terms of the sound uh I, I the way it was described to me it's like a dragon's breath which is kind of interesting the symbol of the dragon when you think about it uh, it has so much uh, uh you know mythological and, and symbolic uh power uh, which reminds me of you know the the warning you get from uh, about china, which he's been telling me about for some time now uh which is the most revered symbol in in uh, china of course is the dragon um and then i i it i was reminded of something I was told a long time ago that um Lines of communication follow lines of transportation, so when you're talking about faster than light speed uh you, you know the the these signals coming in uh, that that's something that we use in history all the time when we talk about advancements, you know like when they built the transcontinental, they didn't just build the transcontinental, they also built the telegraph wires that went along the the, the, the rail bed or the, the rail line so those lines of communication followed the lines of transportation and now of course we're taking leaps into uh, you know into a new consciousness so which is ultimately where all this is leading you know this idea of the the consciousness is primary consciousness is all so anyway those are just some of the thoughts some of the messages that I've been getting uh, as you guys are Opening this up and, and uh, on this great adventure very interesting
0: yeah yeah let me let me bring in Robert Morningstar Robert of course is uh, uh, been involved in the UFO investigatory field for decades uh, he's an old friend of mine personally and of the show he has his own uh, programs um, he is editor of the UFO what what's the full title Robert?
2: Well, UFO Digest is uh, Digest dot com is now archived, but I'm still producing ufospotlight.org. dot Thank you. Okay, so
0: what are your thoughts about <clears throat> not only our radio efforts, but also uh, you know Bruce's friend Anzar and some of what he's talking about?
2: Well, you know, I'm also beside. Uh, rational and logical. I'm also very intuitive. And it's interesting that Bruce and David had an interest, interesting reactions. Bruce with the idea of a warning. And um, David reminded of the science fiction film, The Arrival. I was reminded of a science fiction film instantly, instantly. And the film and the scene is The Forbidden Planet, when the still invisible monster from the id is stalking the crew, and you have not yet seen him, when you, what you first see of him are footprints being embedded in the soil as he's moving along invisibly. They used a very strange sound to make mark uh, his footsteps or its footsteps, and that's what came to mind when I heard the slow, uh, the slowing down of the the chirps that uh, David got. So I think that we're homing in on something here on, on a psychic level and also uh, this intuitive level. So I think it is a warning that uh, what that warning may be. But, Bruce, you said something specific about how to deal with entities that are trying to put alien entities that are pushing humanity toward madness. I would agree with you on that in that regard. And uh, you also mentioned China. And I think that China has made a deal with the devil and turned its own destiny over already to a higher level of artificial intelligence, which is completely not only inhuman, but anti-human. And I sense from my long experience that there are extraterrestrials who are hoping to help us out of this bind. But it seems to me that the New World Order and supranational organizations that is above national governments has made a deal with an extraterrestrial entity and is trying to carry out an agenda which is uh, fundamentally uh, genocidal
0: well we've got about 3 minutes to the top of the hour <clears throat> let me let me say one thing you know to sure. kind of kind of you know uh, kind of bound what you just said I believe, yes, China made a deal with the devil, but it's not ETs, it's with the breakaways. Remember, the Nazis that left the Earth using this extraordinary torsion field technology at the end of World War II, they went out into the solar system, they had 70-plus years to get their act together, to pilfer the libraries, to develop sophisticated variants of the technology, and they've always looked at Earth because it's the only place you can live in the solar system without technology – they want to move back, and I think that there is a, there is this unholy alliance, and I think it's between them, and they're not ETs at all. They're just us transported out there 70-plus years ago with the Chinese, and they somehow got on the wrong side of the breakaways, and the Chinese have suffered as a consequence, and maybe they're now back on the reservation. I mean, remember, just a couple of weeks ago, They took a photo of something extraordinary on the far side of the moon, and they said they're going to be there. They're going to literally give us close-up images in two or three lunar days. Well, that turns out to be a couple, three months from now.
2: Yes. Now, if you believe, as I do, that the new world order is the Fourth Reich, is the breakaway Nazis.
0: That's what um, I think, yes.
2: Yeah, well, then we cannot dismiss uh, the alien presence because the Nazis had made an agreement uh, with the reptilian aliens. And I spoke to you about how many years I wondered about that term that Hitler used repeatedly, that they were going to create a master race and a blonde beast. And as it turns out, William Miltis Tompkins says that the Office of Naval Intelligence found Hold it there, hold
0: it there I want to come back for a few closing words After the break from Dr. Solheim My guests this morning are David Sarita, Bruce Solheim Robert Morningstar We've got uh, Ron Gerbron Waiting in the wings And joining us in the third hour Will be Andrew Curry And of course Keith Is going to talk about something that he witnessed As part of his setup For the program tonight that I think needs to be discussed in the first person. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and this is Karen Carpenter with what we hope is going to happen.
2: Most Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. of interplanetary crap.
0: Over and out.